Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. Good morning. Aren't you glad that he loves you? Like, I mean, like, you know, we say, oh, God loves, you know, Jesus loves me. We say, God loves me. But, but I think it would do us good to every day sit and reflect on the fact that he loves me. Not some version of me that I'm trying so hard to become, and once I become that, then I'll be able to believe he loves me. See, if you try to live that way, the problem will be this. You will constantly struggle and measure yourself against yourself and always try to measure up to something that you believe is lovable and never believe that he actually loves you for who you are and who he's made you to be. But if you believe that he loves you, if you believe that he really is transforming you into the image of his son, if you really believe that he who began that good work in you will be faithful to complete that good work in you, well, then you can stand before him, even in the midst of something that would keep you from feeling that way, and believe that, you know what, I I may not be, like Paul said, not that I have attained it, but this one thing I do, I forget what's behind, and I press forward towards the high mark of the call. What allows me to do that? It's knowing that he loves me. It's believing that he loves me, that I I am the beloved of God right now, that he's not waiting for me to one day become something so that then he can say, okay, now I love you. Because if you think that, you're missing the very thing that allows you to become the ideal that's out in front of you, which is the image of Jesus, which is our standard. We've got it backwards sometimes. Well, if I could just do, then I would believe. Then I would trust then I would know. It's like, no, if you would just believe. What did Jesus say? All things are possible to him who does everything right and makes sure that he stands before God and feels like he has the right to stand there because of his, what he did or what he hasn't done. No, he said, and everything's possible to him that believes. It's that believing that actually makes the thing that your heart wants possible. And sometimes if we're not careful, we'll get trapped and tricked by the enemy and philosophy and, and the doctrine of demons that says, you know, well, if you would just do a little better, God would love you a little bit more. Or, or if you would just try a little bit harder, then you could become. And it's like, man, nobody through their own efforts ever became anything that was worth becoming. Paul said, like, everything that I thought was precious, knowing all that I knew, all that stuff, I have now counted it as complete garbage compared to this one thing, knowing him. Um, If you have your Bibles, I want you to open them real quickly. We're going to jump around from old to new, old to new, old to new. And if you can't keep up, read your Bible more so you can. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm not kidding about read your Bible more. (laughs) Guys, like literally we should be people that are reading his word continually. Like not so we can check a box and think that God gave us a gold star for the day. Like you received the biggest gold star that anyone could ever receive when the blood of Jesus cleansed you. When he looked down from heaven while you were in sin and thought that your life was worth the life of his son. Like that's the greatest gold star stamp seal of approval that anyone has ever received. There is nothing you could do that would earn you more favor than God trading the life of his son for your life. Like individually, yes, for the world, but individually, like standing in front of him and saying, God, you thought my life was worth the life in the blood of Jesus. 
That must mean you see something or know something about me that I don't see or I don't know. And Father, I'll spend the rest of my life discovering who you've created me to be and understanding why you valued me so highly. That's what David's talking about. He says, what must man be? He's not like, what must man be that you're mindful of him? He's not saying it in a disgusted tone, like, why would you ever be mindful of man? We're, we're... No, he's saying, what must man be that you would be mindful of him? There must be more to us than we realize. We must have a greater purpose, a greater destiny. We must have a greater identity, a higher value than the one that we've lived in. Um, and so we, we've been talking about grace, and we're going to continue to talk about the gospel of grace for I don't know how long. Um, I mean, we talk about it in every message. I, I firmly believe that because without the gospel of Jesus Christ, everything else we talk about is utterly impossible. But really digging into that, that uh, message, and um, you know, we t- we've talked about how Paul says, if righteousness could be found in the works of the law, then Christ died in vain. Like, do you realize that, that you take lightly the work of the cross when you believe that your good efforts could earn you something that only his blood could? Like, if your relationship with him is based on, well, I feel like I can approach him and pray now because I've been really good, then you're saying there was no re- reason Jesus needed to die to make a way for me to come to him because on my own efforts, I can do okay sometimes and I can do good enough that I feel like I could approach him on my own merit, on my own good works, on my own righteousness. And that's why Paul says this, if, if righteousness could be found in the, by the works of the law, Christ died in vain. And what, he, what he's saying is, is like, obviously Christ didn't die in vain, but the blood of Jesus isn't doing in your life what it's meant to do. If you're believing and living this, he loves me, he loves me not life that's based on your best efforts and keeping of the law. Um, I mean, it was the same lie from the beginning in the garden, right? Think about it. God creates man and woman. He places them in the garden. He loves them. He communes with them. He has all these amazing things for them. Everything is good. And then the lie comes and says, well, what God did is amazing, but there's something more you need to do to really get to that next level. Like, you know, yeah, he, he, he did. He, it was not through anything, not through your own good deeds, and yes, grace, through faith, and all that stuff is good, and, and, and that is what salvation is found in and found in alone. But now that you're saved, now, here's some things you need to do so you can really get to that next level reach that super Christian status. And so Paul talks about that a lot. Why? Because it's so prevalent in us to want to be able to do something because if we've done something, it makes it easier sometimes for us to believe that we deserve or that we should receive. We're hardwired that way from the beginning. That's why we have to be transformed by renewing our minds. The way that we think has to change. That's why Jesus kept saying that to them. Repent. Change the way that you think. Turn from what was because something new is here. The kingdom of God has come. And, and he kind of flipped everything on its head when he, was, when he was here. And the reason why was he was trying to get them to realize, like, guys, listen, you have this idea of what it is to be righteous, but I'm telling you, you have no clue how hard it is, how utterly impossible it is for you you to be righteous in your own works so he takes the standard he ratchets it up a little bit more and says all right so you thought that you weren't committing adultery just because you didn't sleep with someone that wasn't your wife but i'm telling you if you've wanted to you've already committed adultery 
Or you thought that you weren't a murderer and kept that commandment because you haven't physically killed someone. I'm telling you, if you've had hatred in your heart and wanted to do that, you've already committed murder. And of course, whoever is guilty of breaking one of the laws, the least of the laws, is guilty of them all. And so, I feel like in the almost 13 years now, goodness, that I've been privileged to pastor, one thing that I have seen is a lot of roller coaster lives. A lot of like, man, one week, one month, one year, whatever it is, I'm like on the mountaintops and just, um, just so on fire for, for Jesus. And, and, and then it's like there's this crash. And it's like, man, like we were never meant to live a roller coaster life. Like when it talks about like, you know, going through like from mountaintop to valley, it's not talking about like our position in him raises and lowers. It's talking about the natural world that we live in. Like we're going to go through valleys and we're going to be on top of peaks in the natural, but we're called to be the same people in the valley as we are on the mountaintop. Otherwise, what the mountaintop is Lord And so when we're in the valley, when the mountaintop isn't there, the circumstances have changed. Now all of a sudden we're changed because our circumstances changed, proving that Jesus wasn't Lord, that we were just doing really well because things were going really well. And now that things aren't going really well, we're not doing really well. We're not really well. And that's not how we're called to live. We're called to be those same people that are just as full of joy in the valley as we are on the mountaintop and just as full of faith and excitement and hope when everything is going good as we are when everything around us is going bad because our hope isn't anchored in our circumstances or in what we see and hear in the natural. Our hope is anchored in Jesus Christ who is unwavering, unmovable in the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same Jesus that I was excited about when everything went well is the same Jesus that I'm excited about when things aren't going well because as for me, I've decided that my hope and my trust and my faith is in him. And and, and like literally that's the answer to roller coaster Christianity is to anchor our lives in Jesus so that we're not anchored to anything else. So we're not tossed around by every wind of doctrine. So that we're not like a ship without a rudder. Like when the wind's blowing the direction that I want to go, awesome. But if I don't have a rudder and I don't have something that is steering my life and something that is greater than me, then what happens when the wind's blowing the opposite direction? Well, I'm just headed in that direction now. Come on, we're, we're, we're called to live like Jesus lived. That's what we're called to. He said, follow me. We're being transformed from glory to glory into the very image of Jesus. It's the work of the Spirit of God to transform us into the image of his Son. Like, that's what he's faithful to complete. He started that work in you, and he's faithful to complete that work in you. Jesus sleeps during a storm. Why? He's not, like, at all concerned about a storm on the outside because of the peace that he carries on the inside. And here's the thing. What if Jesus would have been freaking out? I just think about it. What if they came and woke him up and he went, whoa, no way. Oh, this is horrible. We're going to die. Like, 
No, see, someone in the boat had to know something that everybody else didn't and had to believe something different than what everybody else believed and had to be anchored and trusting in something greater than what was going on around them so that when everybody else was freaking out, he could actually be the answer. And you're called to be that person. We're called to be those people. The church is called to be that. We're supposed to be that place of peace and calm and safety and security that when everybody's freaking out, we can look around and say, oh, you know what? Uh, Yeah, I can see that that's going on. I'm not blind to it. It's not like Jesus woke up and said, there is no storm. Like, that's not faith. That's denial. No, he realized there was a storm, but he also realized the storm has no ability to stop the word of God that said, let's go to the other side. And so he speaks to the storm and calms. There's times where we actually help people by fixing the things in their surroundings. But the problem is, is if the only thing we do ever, that's why he was talking to the disciples and he says, why is it you still have no faith? What was he saying? Guys, if you need me to, to, to change the external every time something goes wrong, you're not gonna make it. You need to have some faith so that when things are going on around you, the answer isn't for everything to be changed, it's because you've been changed. And so when he says that to them, he says, why is it you still have no faith? He's not like ridiculing them. He's not like trying to condemn them. He's saying like, guys, like I spoke a word to you that said, let's go to the other side. I didn't say let's go to the middle, freak out and drown. And that we're, we're called to be like him. And, and, and again, there are times where, you know, we have the ability to help people with their circumstances. There's nothing wrong with that. Jesus did it. But he knew that the ultimate answer wasn't to fix every circumstance. The ultimate answer was for them to believe in him in the middle of the circumstance. That's why if, all we, if, if, if we think that, you know, the, the social justice wave that is like just ridiculing, I mean, I mean, just ravaging the church right now and trying to turn the church into you know, social justice wars. You guys wouldn't believe the emails I get weekly of people telling me what I should and shouldn't preach and we should be focusing on this and what we should and shouldn't be doing and all, all this stuff. And I don't mean this like rudely or arrogantly or anything like that. Please don't write and tell me what to preach. I have never asked a person what I should preach and I don't plan to start now. Well, I won't. I'm just, I want to say to you some, that's not me boasting. I'm just saying I don't trust anything but him. I don't trust anyone but the Spirit of God. I don't trust, like, and it might be good stuff. I'm not saying that the stuff people send me is bad. I'm just saying if it's not what God has put in my heart to preach, I can't stand up here with conviction and preach it and know that it's his word for us now through me. There may be other people that are called to preach that stuff. Awesome. Listen to them and be fired up about that. But the problem is, is that when we see the answer to things as fixing external problems alone, we miss the point. And we become basically an organization that has resources to fix problems, but lacking the answer that fixes the problem. And so, yes, we help when we can. Yes, we do what we can. 
Yes, we lay our lives down and serve one another. But at the end of the day, if we're not in the middle of that, pointing people to Jesus so that their faith is in him and not in an organization or in a, a system or in a program, if we're not pointing them to Jesus who is the answer, then you have just become Lord or the organization has just become Lord. And every time there's a problem, they're going to run and turn to that rather than running and turning to him. That wasn't in my notes, but man, that felt good to preach. <laughs> and I, also, while I'm on it, oh, uh, is that okay? I'm going to come on. Don't worry, Chuck. <laughs> no, while I'm on it, like, another reason why it's so important for us to be in the Word is because right now the Word is being twisted and perverted in ways that I would have never imagined possible, and it's happening in churches. Guys, like, there's literally people out there taking Romans 12 too, and saying, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then preaching that that is why it is okay for a man to become a woman or a woman to become a man, because we're constantly supposed to be being transformed as the way that we think changes. So I used to think that I was a boy, but now that I know that I'm a woman, it's my responsibility to be transformed to the, the, the renewing that's happening in my mind. Guys, that's a doctrine of demons. Like it's such a twist. We're, we're to be transformed into the image of Jesus. And it says in Christ there's neither male nor female. In other words, that's not the point. Jew nor Greek. Like, no, that's not the point. Our nationality, our race, our gender, none of those things are the point of being transformed by the renewing of our mind. What's transformed is our heart, our lives, the way that we think is changed because Jesus has come inside. The Spirit of God is inside of us. And so as we read the Word and we see truth in the Word and, and as the Spirit of God reveals it to us, it goes from something that we know in our spirit to something that changes the way that we think because we believe differently. It will never take us away from the word of God and into perversion. It will always do the opposite and pull us out of anything that is twisted and, and, and perverted because he came to make the crooked path straight. And while I'm on it, <laughs> no, this is something I've been talking to Patty about recently is, is the whole idea of the 18-inch journey from my head to my heart. Uh, we, I've, I think we, we talked about this like a year ago, and it's been something I've been just kind of chewing on and thinking about. Now, I'm not, I'm not ridiculing anyone that uses that term. I think that if you boiled it down, they probably mean what I'm about to say. But the truth of the matter is, is that our heart is never changed by what we believe in our head. You cannot, through knowledge, gain what can only be, be gained by the Spirit of God in you, giving you revelation. Your heart, when you get born again, you get a new spirit within you. You get a new heart within you. The way that you think has to be changed by that new life that's inside of you. What you think will never produce new life inside of you. So you're transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, when what I know to be true by the Spirit within me, by, by, by the revelation that's come to me through the grace of God that's in my life, as that change is who I am, my belief will start to line up with that, and the way that I think will come into line with the Spirit of God that's within me and the direction that he's leading me. It can't work the other way around. I can't study enough to believe, but my belief will always cause me to want to know the Word. I, it says that, that natural things are discerned by the natural, but spiritual things only by the spiritual. Like, 
Like, I can't know something enough and say, okay, now that I know it here, I have to try to know it here. No, it says with a heart a man believes, and with his mouth he confesses unto salvation. You believe this in your heart, and it starts to change what comes out of your mouth. Like, that's the journey, is for what's in me, my heart that's been transformed by the gospel of Jesus is actually changing my life, and I'm being transformed by the renewing of my mind, but my mind is being renewed by the Spirit of God within me. Yes, studying the Bible, yes, learning God's Word, all that stuff is important and amazing, but the truth of the matter is, there's people out there that know the Bible from, from cover to cover that don't believe a word of it because knowledge will never cause belief. You cannot argue somebody, you cannot argue somebody into believing. You can't. Because faith only comes by God, and it's a gift of the Spirit. With a heart, with his heart a man believes. So what I believe by the Spirit within me has to make its way into every part of my life and transform the way that I think. I went over Not as good as the first two, but that's okay. Don't write me and ask me if I think people that have a school name that are doing something wrong. No, I think if you talk to them, they would probably bear out what I'm saying. I just think we have to be careful and not idolize knowledge to the point that we think that if we could just learn enough that we would believe. Because belief only comes by the word of God, the spirit of God that is in us. All right. All right. I'm done now. That was all the free stuff. Now you get what you paid for. Because you did give today, right? All right, well, while I'm on that, that's a whole message. It's coming, though. Don't worry. I mean, we preach it every time we talk about giving. We say, if you feel like you have to give or you're afraid of what's going to happen if you don't give, please don't give because that's giving out of compulsion, not cheerfully as you've purposed in your heart. But I want to teach through that in, in depth. Because I think it will set a lot of people free and actually allow you to step into the blessing of cheerful giving. Like it's in the New Testament. God loves a cheerful giver. When you give, give what you've purposed in your heart, not out of compulsion, not because someone told you you had to, and out of love, not out of fear. Fear involves punishment, not because I'm afraid of what will happen if I don't give. Out of understanding what I've been given, out of love, I cheerfully want to give. I feel like there's, all right, well, I'm just going to do it. All right, I will. No, because, listen, I honestly believe that this will, will actually allow you to live in the blessing of cheerful giving rather than under the, the, the compulsion of fear of what happens if I don't. No, I can't because I have to use all the scriptures. I can't. <laughs> I can't, because I know what's going to happen if I do it without having it all, in fr- the scriptures all in front of me. Some people are like, yeah, well, what about this? And all that stuff is answered. So, all right, so do turn to, <laughs> turn to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2 real quick. For indeed, we've had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. 
We have all heard this verse, right? Like we've heard it, it preached like, you know, well, they had the gospel, they had the good news preached to them, but it didn't profit them anything because they didn't actually mix faith. They didn't believe what was preached to them. They didn't trust what was preached to them. And so because of that, they, they, it didn't profit them. They didn't enter into what was being offered to them, to the good news that was given to them. And, and I've, I've, I've chewed on this for quite a while now, and I was thinking about, well, why after all that they saw? And all that they experienced. Like, we think we've seen and experienced things of God, and we have. But, I mean, they literally, like, physically watched these things happen. They watched rivers turn red from blood. They watched frogs, you know, come down from the locusts devour fields. Like, the firstborn of every household that wasn't under the covenant of the blood being shed for, for Passover dropped dead. Like, they saw the Egyptians run after them and give them their gold. They saw Pharaoh's heart turn and him say, okay. Then they saw it turn again and him say no and them get swallowed up after God opened the Red Sea like they saw water flow from a rock they saw manna appear every single day they saw a, 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 a pillar by day and a, or a cloud by day and a pillar by night like they literally physically lived in the manifestation of God's amazing provision every single day and yet for some reason they didn't believe him when it came to the promised land that they were supposed to enter and living in the promise and I've often been like why didn't they believe like it's one thing to say like well it profited them nothing because they didn't put their faith in it but why didn't they put their faith in it after everything that he did and I found the answer is reading in Deuteronomy Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 19 Moses is talking to the people he says then we set out from Horeb and went all the way went through all that great and terrible wilderness which you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites just as the Lord our God had commanded us and we came to Kadesh Barnea I said to you you have come to the hill country of the Amorites which our Lord which the Lord our God is about to give us see the Lord your God has placed the land before you go up take possession as the Lord the God of your fathers has spoken to you do not fear or be dismayed then all of you approached me and said, let us send men before us that they may search out the land for us and bring back to us word of the way by which we should go up and the cities which we shall enter. The thing pleased me and I took 12 of your men, one, from, one man from each tribe. They turned and went up the, into the hill country and came to the valley of a skull and spied it out. Then they took some of the fruit of the land in their hands and brought it down to us. And they brought back a report saying, it is a good land which the Lord our God is about to give us. Yet you were not willing to go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God and grumbled in your tent, saying, because the Lord hates us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go up? Our brethren have made our hearts melt, saying, the people are bigger and taller than we. The cities are large and fortified to heaven. I just want to say something real quick. It says, our brethren made our hearts melt when they said this. Just because something is true doesn't mean that everybody that you know needs to hear it. Like, you need to ask God for discernment about, is me saying this going to actually cause their heart to stumble? And if it is, then I don't need to say it even if it's true. Like, when we were in the hospital with Aaliyah, I wanted to hear everything that was being said. I wanted to know everything the doctors were saying. I wanted to know everything that was happening because it didn't cause my heart at all to go into a place of fear. It actually made me, like, for whatever reason, like, encouraged that I knew what was going on and I was trusting the Lord and I knew what he was going to do. But then there were some people People, when they heard those things, it caused them to just go to pieces when they would hear things like, you know, survival percentage chances. I honestly, when I heard the survival percentage chances, I was just like so encouraged, like this has to be the Lord. Like he's going to do it. 
But then there were some people, if they heard that, like it caused their heart to melt in fear. It's wisdom to know, like just because something is true doesn't mean I have to tell everybody. And I should probably use wisdom in knowing where people are at before I tell them some things that I, that I know. Like that's just a general good principle in life. All right. The people are bigger and taller than we. The cities are large and fortified to heaven. And besides, we saw the sons of Anakim there. Then I said to you, do not be shocked, do not fear them. The Lord your God who goes before you will fight on your behalf just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you just as a man carries his son in all the ways which you have walked until you came to this place. But for all this, you did not trust the Lord your God who goes before you on your way to seek out a place for you to encamp in fire by night and cloud by day to show you the way in which you should go. God, thank you for your word. I thank you that it, it always goes forth in power, Father, that it is a sword that is sharp, that rightly divides and separates, God. I pray that as we open your word, it opens us, God, that we would never just come to your word and leave the same, but we would see and we would be changed. God, that, that this, like, what you're doing inside of us, God, would, would begin to transform us, that the faith that you've given us would be strengthened by the hearing of the word, and I thank you for that, God. I ask that you would continue to change us and transform us as we follow you, thanking you for being faithful to complete what you've begun. In Jesus' name, amen. So he, he comes to them and says, like, God brought you to this land. It was the land that he promised to Abraham. It was a good land flowing with milk and honey and all the different things that God promised them. And he says, and, and when he brought you there, because you saw something, because of what was said, he said, you gathered in your tents and you grumbled and said, the Lord hates us. Therefore, he's brought us here to be destroyed. Like, everything that God did for them all that God promised them, all that he told them about being his chosen people, all that he told them about being for them and protecting them and providing for them, the covenant that he had made with them. Like for all of that, when things were good, they believed maybe, oh yeah, I guess he loves us. But when they came to a place where they didn't see how they on their own effort could do the thing that was put in front of them, that God said, guys, you're not gonna have to do this on your own. I'm going to do it for you and through you if you would just trust me and obey me. But instead of trusting him and instead of believing him, they actually said, because the Lord hates us. They looked at the promises of God and weighed them against their own abilities, comparing themselves among themselves and decided we cannot do the thing that God is asking, which was right if they were looking at it in their own strength and their own ability alone. But they were never called to live in their own strength and their own ability. God said, I will go before you and drive them out, and I will go and I will destroy the enemy and make a way for you. It's always been God's promise. Listen, you don't have to do the things I'm asking of you on your own. If you will just trust me and obey me, if you will just believe, I will go and I will go for you and I will go through you. I will work in you and I will work through you to accomplish the things that I've put in front of you to accomplish. And they're like, God hates us and that's why he brought us here. And then Moses says, because they thought he hated them, they didn't trust him. Because they didn't believe he loved them, they didn't trust him. 
And I honestly believe that everything that in this Christian life has to start with believing he loves me. Like, think about all the promises that are based on his love. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. But don't miss the fact that it says, because he loved you, he sent his son. Not so that he could, because he did. And in this, God demonstrated his great love for us, that while we were yet in sin, he sent his son to die as a sacrifice for our sins. Not so that God could love us, he sent his son. He demonstrated his love for us that while we were in an unlovable place, he sent Jesus to give his life. You weren't even born yet. You hadn't even committed the terrible things you were going to commit and God looked in the future and said, you're gonna do that, but you know what? I love you and I'm gonna send my son and he's gonna give his life and make payment for that so that you don't have to. But it has to be based on his love for us. And I wanna... I want to compare those promises that he gave to them, which he said were the promises he made to Abraham. So look in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 10. He says this, Then it shall come to pass, then it shall come about, when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied. He goes on to say, then don't make sure that none of you forgets the Lord. Why? We have a, sometimes we have a propensity inside of us to really remember and rely on the Lord when we don't have all of those things, when things are going bad, but when everything's going good. God never warned them when they were out in the wilderness and needed him to feed them every day and needed them to keep him, alive, keep him, to keep them alive every day. Don't forget about me. How could they? They needed him to live in the physical sense every single day. He gives them the warning when they're about to go into a land where they're not going to need him to be the shade and the warmth that he was, where they're not going to need him to provide manna every day, where they're not going to need him to make water flow from a rock. Why? Because he understands if all I am to them is a source of provision, when I give them a source of provision, they could be prone to forget me. Look, if all God is is your answer to your problems, what do you do when you don't have any problems? If all God is is the, the answer to the big problems in life, what do you do when you don't have any big problems in your life? And so he's, he's talking about this, but I, I want to look at, now look at Galatians 3.10. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to seam this together, I promise. For as many as are written, for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Any curse that was tied to the law, you've been redeemed from because Christ became the curse of the law when he hung upon a tree, the cross, and gave his life. Just allow that to enter your thinking when people start talking to you about generational curses well you know you're under a generational curse how could you be under a generational curse 
If generational curses were caused by the sin of the father, which was what? The violation of the law by the father being passed on to the second and third and fourth generations. So if you're born again in Christ and you have a new bloodline and you have, call no earthly man your father, you have one who is your father and he's in heaven. How many curses are coming your way based on the sin of your father if he is your father? And if we're going to go that route, then why not go the route of that righteousness is to a thousand generations to one that loves him? Come on, if you go back a thousand generations and there was someone that loved God and served God, that means that the blessing of righteousness, if we're going to live under that system, is coming your way versus the disobedience of a father within four generations. But you know the truth of it is, none of that stuff is valid for us today. What do you mean? The, the blessing of a, th- of a thousand years of righteousness? Well, yeah, but with that comes the curse of, of, of the generational sin that gets passed down and the curse that gets passed down from generation to generation. You don't want to live under that. That's based on works. You want to live under this, that Jesus Christ came, became for you and as you, he became your sin and hung upon a tree, hung upon a cross and took every single curse of the law upon himself so that you might be delivered from it and you now can be born again and actually have a new bloodline as a brother of of Jesus and a son or a daughter of God and Jesus said call no earthly man your father you have one who is your father and he is in heaven so if someone tries to tell you though it's something your dad or your grandfather did that's causing that let them know you don't even know my dad if you would say that because you would know that there's no chance he sinned and brought something into my life Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree, in order that in Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So Paul starts off talking about no one being justified by the law. He repeats that a lot of times why he wants to get it into our thinking and into their thinking that, listen, there is nothing that you can do by keeping or not violating laws that makes you righteous in God's sight and makes you justified so that you would lean never on your own works, but you would always rest in the finished work of the cross of Jesus. Why? Because if my belief that he loves me and is for me is found in the cross of Jesus, then that's not up to debate and it's never subject to change. It is rock solid yesterday, today, and forever. And I won't live in this cycle of of sin and feeling shamed and guilty and then not sinning and feeling holy and blameless and sin. No, I'll actually live in the righteousness that he paid for and I'll be led by his spirit and the end of the roller coaster will come because it will be no longer I that lives, no longer I doing this stuff, but Christ that lives in me and his life being worked out in me and through me. But I want to look at the the promises that were made to Abraham that that, uh, Paul said would come to us because of the Spirit of God. He says, you'll get cities which you did not build, great and splendid cities which you did not build. In the Old Covenant, these were physical cities. They were a bunch of buildings that people had built. They were their enemies. And God said, you're going to inherit these buildings, and you're going to take possession of them, and they will become yours even though you didn't build them. There was one thing that every great city had back in those days. It's why he said you can go up and take the city. It was always built on a hill. It was always built on the high ground. Why? Because it would give them the advantage of being able to see and it would keep them protected from attack. It would make it a whole lot harder for the enemy to attack them when they were in an elevated position and it would give them the ability to see out in a great distance, right? So Matthew chapter 5 verse 14, here's Jesus talking to his church, to the disciples who become the church. He says this, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. 
In the old, it was a physical place. It was these buildings that were all clustered together on top of a hill that they would take possession of. In the new covenant, we receive that promise, but it's the church, the family of God that we're brought into. That wasn't built by, his, by human hands. We didn't build this. In Matthew 16, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will have no power, will not overpower it. 2 Corinthians 13, 14 says this, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So this, this, this city that we become a part of, that we inherit, is not just a single building off by ourselves. It's a bunch of buildings that have been brought together and they've been set on a high place that keeps them protected and gives them the advantage to see by the fellowship of the Spirit of God within us. We're joined together through the unity of the faith and the fellowship of the Spirit. So while they were looking for physical buildings that God was going to give them, God brought us into something that he built, which is the church, which is a bunch of physical buildings that have been brought together to make this city that he said would be set on top of a hill. It says houses filled with things that you didn't provide. In the old, these are physical little dwellings. These are, there'd be all these little, all these houses and buildings would be together and each one of them would be an individual and they would be, what made up the city would be these individual houses. And he said, you're going to get houses filled with things that you didn't provide. So in the old, this is a physical individual house. In the new, 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are a temple of God? And that the Spirit of God dwells in you. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy. And that is what you are. So we are now the temples, the houses of God that are filled with his Spirit. Filled with good things that we didn't go out and collect for ourselves. Not made with physical hands. Not made by ourselves. Not made by our own efforts. We didn't build this house that the Spirit made. There was nothing we could do. We could not make our house clean enough for the Spirit of God to come and dwell within us. There was nothing we could do that said, okay, I know I was born into sin and I know that I have the Spirit of this world inside of me and I have a sinful nature inside of me. But if I could just do this well enough for this long enough, then maybe I'll make myself clean enough that God could come in and take residence and make me a, whole, a, a dwelling place for His Spirit. No, you couldn't do that. So Jesus came and gave his life so that you could actually be cleansed of all unrighteousness so that you could be a temple that was fit for the spirit of God to come and dwell in. Acts 7.48 says, however, the most high does not dwell in houses made by human hands. We've been given gifts that we didn't earn or work for or collect. He said, you're going to have houses that are full of things that you didn't collect, that you didn't work for, that you didn't go out and find and bring home and place in this house. James 1.16, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting of shadow. So now we're temples of God individually filled with the Spirit of God and filled with gifts he's given us to reach the world for the kingdom of God. And joined together, we make a city that Jesus said is set upon a hill. We get, there's more. And hewn cisterns, which you did not dig. A cistern was a well or a fountain, a place where water would flow. And when they came into this land, he said, there's going to be places where water is flowing that you didn't have to dig down. You didn't have to crack the rock. You didn't have to break your back and work with your own hands and effort to find that water and to get that water to flow. I bet you know where I'm going with this. John 7, 37, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, believes in what? Believes in the love of God. Believes that because he loved me, he sent his son. 
believes that because he loved me, he shed his blood to cleanse me of all unrighteousness, to make me pure, blameless, holy, upright, beyond reproach. Because he loved me, he called me into his family. Because he loved me, because he loved me, because he loved me. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who had believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. In the old, it was a physical thing that you had to go and visit and drink, and when you left, the process of being empty began the second that you walked away from that spring. The minute you walked away from it, the process of being empty and thirsty and needing to return back there began the second you stopped drinking. It was a limited, diminished thing that wasn't eternal and you had to constantly return to in order to be filled up. In the new, Jesus said that the Spirit of God within you would be a river of living water that would flow out of you. But he said it would only be for those who believe because then they would receive the Spirit of God. This is why as believers we're never in a drought or a diminished season. Because we're not like those who rely on the external water that they needed back then. We are those who live by the internal, by the Spirit of God within us. It's why our leaves aren't brown in a season of drought but remain green. Come on, we talked about this before. Everybody looks good in a rainy season. Every tree looks like its roots are deep in a rainy season. But when your, when your leaves stay green when there's a drought going on, when your leaves stay green, when there's a famine going on, when your leaves stay green, when you're not withered up and shriveled up when external situations change, when you go through a season of, of hardship in the natural and yet you don't wither up and shrivel up and die but your leaves stay green and you continue to bear fruit, there's something not natural about that and it's because you're not producing fruit and your leaves aren't green because of the external, it's because of what's inside of you. It's that river that flows out of you rather than you having to go and find something that flows into you that you'd built with your own hands. And the last one, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant and you eat and are satisfied. In the old, the promise was you're gonna get there and there's going to be vineyards that have grapes. Remember they brought some back and they were huge, biggest shoulders, maybe not that big, but not as big as mine. <laughs> There's probably some people with pretty big shoulders back then, Zach. But listen, he said, in the, in the old covenant, they would come into this place and there would be vineyards there that would be producing fruit that they didn't plant and they would be able to just eat the fruit and enjoy the fruit of a vineyard that they didn't have to labor over and olive groves that they didn't have to plant. But it was something on the external that had to be consumed. They would eventually run out, and they'd have to go back and eat more. And they would run out, they'd have to go back and eat more. They had to continually go back to eat more. In the new, we're, if we're in Christ, as we abide in him and he abides in us, we bear much fruit. And it's not a fruit that we harvest and consume. It's the fruit of the spirit that he produces inside of us as we abide in him. Our lives will produce fruit but it's not by our own works and our own efforts. It's not because I can say, well, I planted this seed and that's why you see this fruit. It's because the spirit of God within us as we yield to him is constantly producing fruit in our lives. So you're saying we have no responsibility? No, we have the same responsibility that they had back then. To believe that he loves them, which led to them trusting him, which would have led to them obeying him. 
It's the same thing that we're called to right now. If I believe that he loves me, I believe that he's trustworthy. And if I believe that he's trustworthy, then I'll do anything that his spirit asks me to do. But I'm not doing it in reverse. I'm not saying, well, if I obey, then maybe that will lead me to trusting. And if I trust, then maybe I'll believe that he loves me. It doesn't work that way. You can't work your way into believing something, but believing will always work its way out of you. It will always produce in you something that is flowing out of you. But it, it, it comes down to the same thing that kept the children of Israel from entering into that promise because Paul said, or whoever wrote Hebrews, I believe it was Paul, but whatever, that they had this good news the good news of God's love for them, the good news that they were his chosen people, the good news that he wanted to protect and provide, the good news of the covenant that he made. They had this preached to them in the desert just as we have had, but it profited them nothing because they didn't believe, they didn't mix faith with what they heard. They didn't actually allow what they heard to change the way that they believed. And so they got in their tents and they said, God hates us. And then they didn't trust him. And I just, I feel like there is a need again in the church to return to a simple place of first believing that he loves me. And I know people would say, oh, I know God loves me. Don't, do you really know that he loves you? Not because of what you've done. Not because you've been a good boy or a good girl. Not because you gave. Not because you served at a soup kitchen. Not because you read your Bible this morning. Not because you sang in worship loudly. No, do you believe that apart from anything that you've done, he loves you? That he loved you and sent his son to give his life to redeem you and to bring you back into fellowship with him and to put his life inside of you? Not on your good days. says, while you were yet in sin, enemies in your mind towards him, he proved his love for you by sending Jesus. Because if you can believe that, if you can believe that, that while I was in sin, that what, before I did anything right, not because I did any, of anything that I did on my own, not because I kept the rules and I kept the law, that if I can believe that he loved me in that place, then now that I'm born again and I'm filled with his spirit and I've been cleansed of all unrighteousness, it's so much easier now for me to believe that he loves me. Why? Because he's placed his son inside of me. Like if he loved me then, why wouldn't he love me now? Well, he loved me and, and then I got born again, but now every time I do something wrong, he pulls his love back. It doesn't work that way. You couldn't earn his love before you were born again by all the good things you do. Why would you lose it? Now that you're born again, when you do something outside of his will, it's not double jeopardy. It's not you couldn't do good enough to earn salvation, but man, the second you earn salvation, now everything you do costs you his love. It doesn't work that way. But if we're not careful, we live that way, even if we wouldn't say it with our mouths. And that's why our leaves aren't green constantly. Our leaves are only as green as we feel like he loves us. And that feeling like he loves us comes and goes based on us and our actions. Come on. The gospel's so much better than that. Come on, if the old covenant was better than that, how much more the new covenant? So I just want to, just stand where you are. I want to pray this over us as a family.
Listen, all of this stuff, every single one of these promises that he made to them in the old covenant that now are ours in the new covenant, they're only possible by the Spirit of God. Every one of them is tied to the Spirit of God. By his indwelling presence in us and his working in us and through us. And you only receive the Spirit of God because as a father, he loved you and sent his Spirit who cries out, Abba, Father, within us. Father, I just pray that you would give us a deeper revelation of your love for us. God, but this revelation of your love for us would be completely apart from our own good deeds, our own self-efforts and self-righteousness. God, that if we have the idea that I've been a pretty good person, so it's easy for me to believe that, I, that you love me, I'm just as lost as the person who believes that I've been too bad for you to love me because I can never earn your love through my good deeds or my lack thereof. It's only by believing that you love me that I can receive everything Jesus paid for. Step into this new life. That I can be born again, filled with the Spirit, cleansed of all unrighteousness, and now begin to live in the knowledge of your love being transformed. So Father, I just, I just pray right now that we would have a fresh understanding of that, that if we have any of this law-based mentality in our thinking where I feel good about you when I'm doing good and I feel bad about you when I'm doing bad, that, that you would come, God, and just bring revelation to us of how deep and wide your love is for us that we wouldn't be people who believe that you loved me while I was a sinner, even though I did everything wrong. But I'm not sure if you love me now that I'm born again when I do anything wrong. That I would be secure in your love for me so that I would trust you. And out of that place of trust, I would be happy to obey, happy to follow the leading of your spirit. I gotta thank you that you've made us part of a city that we didn't build but that you've built. That you've made us houses that we didn't build with our own human hands and filled us with gifts that we didn't go out and collect. That we have inside of us a fountain of water that wasn't dug by our own hands, by our own deeds, but is your spirit within us flowing out of us. And that there's fruit in our lives, God, from a vineyard that we surely didn't plant but it's because of you inside of us producing your fruit that we bear much fruit. All that you've ever asked is that we would remain in your love, abide in your love, believe that you love us, and then live in response to your love. I'll just ask for a greater level of that right now, God, for a greater belief that you are pleased by our lives, for a greater belief that you are happy to give us the kingdom. In Jesus' name.